0: Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. I want to upfront apologize for the rather long delay between episodes. In May, my father passed away and it required a significant amount of time, as you can imagine. I got to spend a week with him by his bedside before he passed. And then there was the planning of the funeral and all the other activities surrounding a death in the family. And I was asked to deliver the eulogy, which I did. And my father had a huge impact on my life. And in an indirect way, he shaped this podcast. My father taught me by his example how to live the good life. He truly achieved the life well-lived. And this show is, in many ways, my attempt to figure out how to live the good life myself. I believe it's the biggest question we all face in our lives. Of course, I'm inviting you to join along, and I hope you get some value along the way as well. But we all need to find our own path, and that's what these conversations are all about. I'm hoping to glean some wisdom from others and apply that to my own life and hopefully help you apply it to your life. I will talk more about my father in the coming year. Facing death is an important part of life, whether that is our own death or those around us, our loved ones. and That's an important topic that I'd like to cover In addition, I'm writing a book about my father and his role as a team psychologist to the 1984 men's Olympic volleyball team that won gold at the Los Angeles Olympics. It's a fascinating and thrilling story about how a group of all-star individual players who learned to play on the beaches of Southern California eventually learned to come together and play as a team and become the best in the world at what they did. So stay tuned on that subject. There's more to come. But now on to today's episode. My guest is Bob Posen, former president of Fidelity Investments. Since retiring from Fidelity, he has created an encore career for himself, teaching at MIT Sloan Business School and writing books, including Extreme Productivity. And the topic of today's discussion, his newest book, Remote Inc., How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are. It's a very timely topic. Those of you in the audience from the value investing community will enjoy a little story he tells about Peter Lynch and his approach to time management. So I hope you stick around for that. But overall, we discuss how to optimize our productivity and well-being while working remotely, and how to prepare for the future, which Bob believes is a hybrid approach of working from both home and the office. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bob as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Bob Posen. On the Real Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Bob Posen, welcome to the Good Life.
1: Well, glad to be with you. I always like the good life. I've been trying to live it for a long time.
0: Well, it's a lifelong learning journey to try to figure out how to live the good life. And hopefully this conversation is going to add to our understanding of that. And I'm really looking forward to it. The topic of today's discussion is this idea of working remotely and how to do it effectively, how to do it productively, and do it in a way that we maintain our emotional and physical and mental well-being. And you wrote a book about the subject co-authored with Alexandra Samuel called Remote Inc. How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are. And certainly very timely given the fact that we're in this COVID pandemic. So I thought I'd start with just asking you about the book, the origin of the book, and if you wrote it before COVID hit and how COVID may have changed the outlook of writing the book and how audiences are adapting to it. Because we're at a point now where we've been Doing remote work for about a year. Many of us weren't doing it before and now we're doing it and we're getting close to potentially going back into the office, maybe negotiating. So it's an interesting time. So how did COVID impact the writing of the book, Bob?
1: Well, I began writing about personal productivity and personal satisfaction in 2012. I published a book called Extreme Productivity that has now been translated into 10 languages and it's sort of a business bestseller. And I had been discussing with my publisher, Harper Collins, the possibility of doing a sequel to that. And when remote work hit, I got to know Alexandra Samuel, because she writes a lot about this subject in the Wall Street Journal. And I was very impressed by her articles. I run a course for executives at MIT Sloan called Maximizing Your Own Productivity, and I asked her to be a guest lecturer to talk about how she's been working remotely for the last 20 or 25 years and her take on it, her tips, her strategies, her tactics. And it worked out very well. We had a great partnership. So in July of last year, we submitted a proposal to Harper Collins to write a book on remote work, taking that approach to productivity and job satisfaction. And they quickly approved the proposal. And on August 1st, we started writing. And we submitted the book in November. And we proved that we were, in fact, very productive. We uh, have never actually met in person. We've uh, been dealing with each other remotely. But it's been a hugely successful partnership. we got the book out. And so far, the reception has been very good.
0: Well, you did indeed prove that you can work productively to go from proposal to finished copy to a book being physically out there and available on Amazon in bookstores by April of the following spring is pretty amazing from what I understand of the book publishing world.
1: It's like, you know, rocket time in publishing because publishers aren't exactly fast in doing this. And Alexandra lives in Vancouver. And i live in boston so we managed to do this while coordinating different time zones and in fact making the best of the time zone so uh, she could do some work at night leave it for me i get up in the morning work on it for three or four hours by the time she uh, got up there it was so uh, we've used uh, the different time zones to our advantage
0: yeah you were certainly walking the talk using your own techniques Early in the book, Bob, you introduced this concept of remote ink and it's sort of a mindset. You, you say in the book that we shouldn't think of ourselves as remote workers. Rather, we should think of ourselves as remote ink and it's, it's a mindset, it's a set of habits. Can you talk a little bit about that and why it's so important?
1: Yeah, that's a very important concept in the book. What we mean by remote ink is thinking of yourself as you are a business of one. And you own your own time, you own your own resources, and you're there. And so that has tremendous implications for how you deal with your boss, how you deal with your company. So instead of taking detailed instructions and directions from your boss, if you think of yourself as a small business owner, then your boss is sort of like your client. You get directions from your client You get a set of receivables, deliverables, that you are uh, going to provide. But once you agree on those deliverables and timeframes, then it's up to you when and how and where you work. That's the big difference. It gives you that autonomy to figure out when it's most efficient for you to work, and it gives you that flexibility of time so that you can take care of your personal needs and your family obligations and that's part of living the good life that we were talking about
0: absolutely and th- and this idea of autonomy is is really important in the good life you know having a locus of control over your life and also in productivity and you had a really interesting data point that you pulled out it was based on a survey and, and as i recall it was Basically the degree to which people have autonomy and, and maybe we can negotiate the autonomy in our work in some way, but the degree to which we have autonomy and how we go about our work has a big impact on how effective and how productive and how happy we are in doing remote work.
1: Yes, we commissioned our own special survey and we did it over a time frame of starting in April and May and going toward uh, August and September. and we found that autonomy is really critical both to how productive you are when you're working remotely and how satisfied you are with working remotely. And the more autonomy you're given, the better you feel about your life and the better you produce at your job. And if
0: we feel we don't have the level of autonomy we might want to have or need to have to really be productive, what might people do? if they're in that situation?
1: Well, it's a good question because people always ask me, they say, well, you're advocating this relationship with your boss by which you negotiate a set of deliverables, a set of time targets, and then you have the freedom and the flexibility to deliver them when and where and how you like. But what if your boss says, no, I'm a guy who wants you at your desk nine to five. In fact, I'm going to put some software on your computer to make sure that you're nine to five. Well, I think you got to have a talk with your boss. And what we advocate is a a tryout, like a pilot. Say, take a a small project that's not critical to the success of your company, but it's significant. And say, let's try using this approach of what we call success metrics for this project. Let's agree on what's going to constitute success at the end of this month, say, when the project's over. But let me have the autonomy to figure out how and where and when I'll work, as long as I deliver these metrics. And let's see how it works. And if you can try it out and do a great job, then you start to win over your uh, boss to this approach. The other thing, of course, you can do is give your boss a copy of our book, but somebody said they tried to give it to their boss, but their boss was so busy he or she didn't have any time to read the book. That's a telling sign in itself. But I think having a pilot, having a tryout—that's the way to start to go. And then I think also, Sean, you know, this command and control model for bosses and their teams—I think it's it's very fragile and it. It doesn't seem very realistic. You know, it's not like the boss can come around and see whether you're in your your seat or in the desk or, you know, this notion of FaceTime, you you stay late at night so your boss can be impressed that you're there. That all doesn't work when you're working remotely. How are they going to exactly keep track of what you're doing? It doesn't make any sense. So I think the move toward remote work sort of undermines this Traditional command and control approach, which emphasizes hours worked. But hours worked is a really crazy metric for people like most of your listeners who are in the knowledge industry. Like, if you write an article and it takes you two weeks and the article's not good, your readers don't say, Well, you put it in two weeks. Versus if you write an article and it takes you two hours and it's a great article, they like it. They don't say, Well, You didn't put in enough hours, so we're not going to like your article. And I think that's true of a lot of knowledge-based jobs. What we're really interested in is the results, the output, not the input. That's what we're really trying to stress in our book.
0: Yeah, that's such a great concept. And you talk a little bit in the book about... The history of a firm and an organization and why we even got together in organizations in the first place, which is to coordinate and collaborate our work. But it led to a lot of measurement of productivity around time as opposed to results. And that's really what people want today is results. And if we can get the results wherever we are, then it's probably better for everyone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, the concept of hours work was developed In the Industrial Revolution, when we had assembly lines and factories, and it probably made sense when you had very commoditized work and a sort of structured uh, assembly line. But it doesn't really make any sense in a knowledge-based economy. I think we would all agree that the results are what's important. So how do you shift an organization from hours' work to results? That's why we say try a pilot approach. Uh, Try it out in a project, and then you'll see how good it is. And we try to say, stay away from general objectives. Try to develop these success metrics where your boss will really have confidence that you'll be producing the right things in the right time, time frame. You know, I always give the example, if your boss says, well, let's all as a team improve customer service. Well, yes, people can all agree, but it's a very vague and general objective. Some people might think that means solving problems more quickly. Other people might think that means going out and seeing more customers. Still other people might think you gotta answer the phone more quickly. So if you can ask the question, how are we going to know at the end of the project whether we've succeeded, and reach an agreement on those sorts of success metrics, then you're moving away from ours to a system of accountability, but much more functional, much more geared into the result, much more geared into what's important to you and your organization.
0: That's a powerful concept. And you talk about accountability, productivity, and and measurement as being, you know, three kind of keys to making this remote ink mindset work. You know we have to hold ourselves account we can define the measurement, the results, but we have to hold ourselves accountable to get the work done. and there can be some challenges there around working from home where it's really on us now to be accountable.
1: Well you're right. I think you know we have bosses who have said to me of all these people working at home, how do I know they're not just practicing their golf swing? you know? How do I know they're not going to the beach? And I said, well, The real question is, are they producing the results you want? And if they go to the beach and then spend spend the whole night working and produce a great program or a great slide deck or a great product for you, why do you care, really, whether they're at the beach in the afternoon, they're working in the morning and in the evening? You're getting the results you want. Isn't that what's important?
0: Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about another concept you introduced, which is to think about... Your market power. you know, if we are remote ink, if we think of ourselves as remote ink, we are our own business, our boss is our client, we have varying degrees of market power depending on our skill set, in our experience. And it's sort of a Michael Porter Five Forces analysis of our own remote ink business, which is kind of interesting, but depending on where we are in our ability to be replaced or not, is important to how we might approach how we do remote work.
1: Yeah, I think that you can see that very much in evidence these days. If you're, for instance, a data scientist who are highly sought after by many companies, then there's no reason for you to have to come into the office five days a week. In fact, you may say, look, I'd rather not live in San Francisco, it's too expensive. I wanna live in Boise, Idaho. I wanna live in Boston, Texas. So if you have market power, you can negotiate uh, a schedule of remote work, and you can also uh, move away from uh, the place where your headquarters are. But we recognize in the book that you know there are people, say, phone reps, who are sort of relatively commoditized, and you know they probably don't have as much market. But still, if they say to their boss, "Just tell me the results you want to get." and then give me a little more flexibility, uh, they should be able to do better. And uh, that's the conversation we want you to have with your boss. You know, I always say your boss knows how to be a subordinate because he or she has a boss. So it's not like all of a sudden this is a totally new concept to them. And a lot of people are afraid to talk to their boss as if their boss doesn't understand these issues. Their boss understands, their boss has a boss, and he or she has to deal with them. So communication is critical, but we recognize realistically there are people with market power, high-powered consultants or high-powered lawyers who are brain makers and people like data scientists. These people will have and they will demand more flexibility on time and place of work.
0: Yes. I couldn't agree more. So much depends on communication and just having a conversation with your boss around, well, what do you need from me to know that the work is getting done or that we're meeting the quality standards or that we're delivering the results? You know, having that conversation can relieve so much anxiety and stress when there's the unknown. People often put negative information into the vacuum as opposed to just filling it with good communication.
1: Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And people make... Him- implicit assumptions about what other people want. And it really is counterproductive because your boss may have a pretty good idea of what he or she wants at the end of the week or the end of the project. There's no sense playing hide the ball because you and your boss want to be on the same wavelength. So let's get there. So that's why we think success metrics not only is good for job satisfaction and productivity, but it's the very process of arriving at success metrics is clarifying. It's clarifying as to what you and your boss really want to get done. How will we know at the end of the project whether we've succeeded? What are the metrics that are important to you as my boss or the organization? And getting on that wavelength eliminates a lot of concerns and really focuses your attention on the right things.
0: You know, most of the work, most of the important, significant work we do today involves teams of people working together, and that requires collaboration. And collaboration requires working with other people in their schedules, and of course, now they're remote. And you introduced this concept of punctuated collaboration as a mindset to think about how to effectively set up our day remotely. Can you talk about what that is and how we might implement it in our own remote work strategy?
1: Yeah, punctuated collaboration means that there are certain times you're going to have your own individual concentrated work, and there are other times that you're going to be working uh, with your team. And punctuated collaboration is a way of saying that sometimes you're off by yourself and sometimes you're with your team. We hear in the remote world, a lot of people say they're on from 8 in the morning till 6 at night, one Zoom call after another. And they're just there every hour on the hour. And that's crazy because some work that they're doing is, in fact, good to have collaboration. But some work, they got to go and do it by themselves. So we're urging people to do a careful analysis of the nature of their work and try to figure out what work is best done, what of their own work what's best done individually and what's best done through the team. So a practical application of this is you have a team that's working on a project. Instead of everybody eight to five, you know, on the Zoom calls every day, you say, okay, we're going to start off on Monday. We're going to have a half day of Zoom calls. We're going to discuss this. We're going to have some brainstorming. We're going to figure out what it is that we really need to do. And then we're going to spend... The rest of Monday and all Tuesday, individually, we're going to allocate projects. We're all going to work on them. And then maybe we'll come back on Wednesday and see where we are. And then Thursday, we'll go back and have individual work. So that's what we mean by punctuated collaboration. Try to use the time at home to maximize your productivity by increasing the amount of time that you're using on concentrated work without interruption. And then use the collaborative time when you could get together with your team to further those goals. So we want you to carefully distinguish between that. And for most people, their work involves some individual concentrated work and some collaborative work. So you don't want to really be on Zoom calls every day from 8 to 5. That's crazy.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think the key... The concept you're talking about here with punctuated collaboration is that it's the unscheduled interruptions, the disruptions throughout the day. That if we're trying to focus, you know, say we're trying to write a piece or we're trying to analyze an equity or a security, we are trying to do some deep reading in our industry, and all of a sudden a text pops in or a social media update or a ding on our phone and all of a sudden we're out of our deep focus. And if we're constantly being interrupted like that, we don't get a chance to do that deep concentrated work. So I think what I am taking away from from your advice here is make some agreements with your team about how you're going to work together so that we can all agree for these two hours, we're going to really try. Now, you may have to call me because something comes up. but We're really going to try to give Ourselves a chance to get the work done for certain periods of time. Is that is that what we're talking about?
1: Absolutely. Though I think the amount of time is more than two hours for most teams. I hope so. That that we really do need uninterrupted time. And I would say we should, uh, except for true emergencies, we should shut off that beep on the phone. That beep is addictive. Uh, When you hear that beep, you you almost have to go and look at it, but you really don't want to do it. There's a lot of empirical work saying that the number of times you get interrupted in a normal workday is huge, and it really is counterproductive. And you've got to get away from that and get the team, as you say, to agree, I would say, to read a whole half days, at least, of uninterrupted, concentrated work, and then get together at the end of the day and compare notes and see where you work. That's a perfectly reasonable schedule.
0: That would be fantastic for most people to carve out a half day and be able to do that. and I think it's challenging in our world today with technology and the way that people have built up habits on how they work and tend to interrupt people.
1: That's another question we're asked often is, how do I avoid having these meetings every hour on the hour? And we have several responses to that. One is, if you get a meeting request, you should ask for the agenda, say politely, I'll be glad to consider coming to your meeting, but I need to see the agenda. Because a lot of these agendas will show you that this meeting isn't really important for you to attend. And so then that gives you a reasonable ground to avoid it. Second thing is we really think that most meetings, Zoom meetings need to end by 45 minutes at the latest. So people have 15 minutes to regroup, to think and get together and get their own life together and their own stuff. And third of all, we just think that organization can really reduce the number of meetings they have overall and really think about what really requires a meeting and what is just an exchange of information. An exchange of information can occur by email or by text or through a Slack channel. It doesn't require a meeting.
0: There's a lot of opportunity to improve how we meet how often we meet, and what happens during a meeting. I want to make a point though about setting the expectations and maybe you call them ground rules. And I love that terminology too, having a set of ground rules, whether we're in a team and we're trying to figure out our operating procedures with our other teammates, or if we are managing a remote team as a manager, you suggest get some ground rules out there. Be clear about how you want to operate together. And it it could involve this punctuated collaboration, but it can also involve, and I think this is really important, when people are going to have downtime and when they are going to step away from their computers and re-engage with their family, with their spouse, with their hobbies, with the stuff that really fills up our bucket and gets us energized to come back to work 100%. That's important too.
1: I agree totally. And I think most people just started to work remotely without a lot of intentionality. They just, you know, they were there, all of a sudden the pandemic came and before they know it, they were working remotely. And we encourage team leaders to be very proactive in establishing these ground rules, because if you don't have them, then lots of people say, well, I thought I had to be on 24-7. Well, that's that's ridiculous. And other people said, Well, I thought I had to respond to every email or something in a Slack channel within 10 minutes. So setting these reasonable expectations and norms is a critical function for any team manager in general, but particularly in the remote context.
0: Bob, I want to talk a little bit about the investment industry for a second. I know you came out of the investment world. You were a former president of Fidelity Investments. I think in the investment world, it's almost even more skewed as far as the results compared to the work you put in. Because if you are investing money for partners, what the partners really care about is the return.
1: When I used to run Fidelity Management and Research Co., the investment arm of Fidelity, uh, I used to say to the analysts, look, we're going to measure your uh, stock picks and how well they went. And we're going to measure your communication of those to the portfolio managers. We don't care when you work. You wanna come here at 5 a.m. in the morning? You wanna come here at midnight? We don't care, but we do care whether your stock picks are gonna do better than whatever index we benchmarked against. So, you know, I was a great advocate of that. And of course, we need you to come in two days a week at certain times so that you can have a team meeting and we can all get together. But in the end, it's the results. In the investment industry, as you know, it's not a beauty contest. It's a results contest. We don't care how you dress or exactly how you comb your hair or whether you have a beautiful shirt or a beautiful dress. No, no one cares. What they're really interested in is what are your results? I always used to say that investment industry is a very tough industry because we look at your results at least every month to the second decimal point and I said, I wonder what would happen if accountants and lawyers and engineers were held to that sort of result-oriented benchmark.
0: Yeah, it's almost like the way that we measure results of Major League Baseball players, where every single time they go out to out to work, their their stats are changing in some way or another. And it's very similar in the investment world. Was there an investment manager? I don't know if did you ever work with Peter Lynch or others at Fidelity that that really stood out to you as far as how they approached their time and their productivity?
1: Well, Peter was and is a great manager He now manages money for his own portfolio. But there are a few things that stood out about Peter. The first is when any event would occur, he would immediately translate it into what it meant for certain companies' stocks. I mean, it's like anyone else might say, well, we're having an Arab-Israeli conflict or... There's a problem with a, a cybersecurity problem in the, this gas line. He immediately translated into stock impacts and was very quick to take advantage. The second thing is, whenever any analyst came to Peter's office, he had a little hourglass, but it was only about five minutes. And he used to turn it over. And at the end of those five minutes, you had to be finished with your pitch. His view was, If you can't pitch it and I can't understand it in five minutes, well, maybe it's not clear enough. Maybe it's not worth doing. And then the third thing Peter was very good about, he understood that if you're a great investment manager, you aren't going to be right all the time. There were certain times you weren't going to be right. And if he could be right 60 or 70% of the time, you're going to do fabulously. And so he didn't dwell on the past. He recognized that and went forward. Last thing is that Peter has this incredible enthusiasm for almost everything. You talk to him about his gardener. He's got the best gardener in the world. He's doing such a great job with his foundation in Boston and supporting various educational efforts. So he has this boyish enthusiasm. He's never lost it. And you just swept up in his energy and his enthusiasm. So, those are some great things about Peter.
0: You know, when I think about success in the investment world, one person who comes to mind is Warren Buffett. And much has been made about Warren's day and how much time he spends reading and thinking about investment and allocating capital as opposed to being tied up in meetings. And of course, he is the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, one of the largest in the country. And I think his schedule is very different than, say, the CEO of Boeing or the CEO of Ford Motor Company or something. So what can we learn from that?
1: We deal with that uh, directly in the book about the time management problem of just booking you. And as you get more senior and you get to be CEO, But then you start to book yourself every hour because everybody wants a piece of your time. So my strong suggestion to every CEO and every senior manager is leave an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon for thinking time. When I used to hang around with a lot of CEOs, they all had this little card in which they were booked from early in the morning to late at night. And I would say to them, is part of your job thinking? And they would sort of laugh and think, oh, this guy's a little crazy. But I said, where's the thinking time? But I don't see that in your schedule. So I've poached a lot of young executives who've risen to certain levels, and they find themselves totally overwhelmed. And I say, you got to tell your administrative assistant, don't book an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon. Leave that time for thinking time. That is critical to your success because as a CEO or a senior executive, it's your job to understand what's going on in the whole world and bring it to bear on your company. And if you don't have that thinking time for reading and reflection, you're in deep trouble.
0: I was going to ask you how you spent your thinking time. So when you were the CEO or a president at Fidelity, I'm assuming you booked yourself an hour in the morning, in the afternoon at least. Um, And you mentioned reading. And I want to talk about that because reading is, it's so important to facilitate thinking, but it also, it's not easy to do it and to do it well. There's always more to read than we have the time to afford to do it. Can you talk about what you did with that hour and how reading worked into that?
1: Well, every morning I would read the New York Times, read the the Wall Street Journal, and I read the Boston Globe, but I only read Boston Globe for the front page headlines and see how the Boston sports teams did. But the thing that I would read every week is The Economist, and I still read it. I think it's the single best source of information about what's going on. But in those hours of thinking time, what I tried to do is to focus on the key strategic issues that I saw affecting the company and affecting our investment strategy. So for instance, now I teach a course called Managing Innovations and in Financial Services. And so I'm still focused on those innovations and what their impact is. I mean, I can remember when ETFs were a small thing and we struggled to sort of figure out, is this going to become a big thing or is this going to be a sideshow? And now I use that time in the morning and the afternoon to look at something like what's going to happen to cryptocurrencies. Strongly believe that there's going to be an effort by many governments, many central banks to take that over and the sorts of functions that will play. I try to look at things, you know, like, how is digitalization impacting banking? How's it in, impacting insurance? These sorts of issues. And at the time, Fidelity in the late 90s, you know, we struggled. And I are all these dot com you know companies. Uh, we sort of had a view which was similar to Warren Buffett's. We we couldn't quite understand these companies, not only with no profits but no revenues. But but that's sort of what we have these days, right? We have a lot of companies coming to market. So you got to really understand where is the revenue growth, where's the future, and when is this company gonna be able to move, make the transition from just revenue to a profitability and what that looks like. So those are the sorts of things. And in order to learn that, in order to be up on that, you really gotta read broadly being at MIT, of course, I have the privilege of having a lot of seminars with very smart people. So I'm working on a lot of those and trying to think about those and think about where are the future directions? I'm trying to focus on the next three to five years. What's going to change in the next three to five years? And I really believe that most people just feel more comfortable with the present and the status quo. And... I like to tell my students, and I also like to tell the people I work with in industry, is change is the rule, not the exception. Stability is the exception. And once you start to understand that, it has a very different impact on your perspective.
0: Yes, change is the rule, not the exception. It reminds me, what you're talking about, Bob, it reminds me of something I heard Jeff Bezos say when he was recently congratulated on a quarter, hey, in fact, he said it happens a lot. People will say, good job, Jeff, or good job, Amazon, for a great quarter. And he's always sort of taken aback by that because he's always thinking two years ahead. He's thinking on the quarter that's two years ahead. That's where he's spending all of his time, is two years down the road. Whatever happened in this quarter was baked in a long time ago, and it's sort of in his rear view mirror. He's well, thinking I'm, forward.
1: I'm very much of that same view. I had the privilege of working under the chairman of Fidelity, Ned Johnson. And remember, he was the one who introduced checking to money market accounts. I mean, they were starting, they were relatively small, and he realized that that was the key. So he did that. Second of all, he built the record keeping system for 401k when people barely knew what that was, but he anticipated that that would be the wave of the future. So Ned was always five to 10 years ahead of time. And so I learned at the feet of one of the great thinkers in the future. And, and he was right most of the time. Well,
0: that's a really good point. I mean, if we're going to be a leader, if we're going to lead a team or lead a division or an organization, we have to think ahead. We have to think over the horizon. We have to anticipate what's coming up over the next hill. And to do that, we need time to think. We need time to reflect. We need time to read. Filtering through what to read, I find is sometimes hard. You know, Should I read this book? Should I read that book? Should I read this report?
1: I think that's a hard one, but here, here's the basic thing is the way we wrote this book is it's a quick read and it has takeaways at the end of every chapter. And you can just go through the takeaways and get the gist of it. So my view is if there's somebody gives me a 500-page book, I'm not going to read the whole 500 pages. I'm going to read the introduction, the conclusion, and then see whether I want to read anything else. And I try to read people's articles because usually if you find an article by somebody that will contain 80 to 90 percent of the gist of their ideas. You know, the other thing is I want to read things where I learn something. There's so much, you know, these days that's just It's filler. You see the end book on the same subject. I want to learn something new. That's what I really respect. You know, I read a a book review the other day about a guy who was a professor, and he looked at Homer's poems, and he figured out that really, they weren't the result of people writing things down. They were the result of an oral tradition. And he transformed the whole understanding of that. So that was really impressive to me. I want to read those people who I've come to see are the ones who are thinking about new ideas, who are bringing forth new ideas. I'm privileged to be at MIT where there are a lot of people like that. So you've got to be disciplined. The second thing is you can't hope to be an expert in all areas. I've chosen to be try to be an expert on financial services. and Now I have a minor in personal productivity, but That's about all I can handle. I'm sure there are lots of interesting things about macroeconomics. There are lots of interesting things about food technology, lots of interesting things about many things, but I'm not trying to learn all of those. I've got to pick the few areas where I can gain some sort of comparative advantage in my thinking. And the other thing besides reading, I think it's really important to be able to talk to people what I call the intellectual deep pockets. And anyone who's a CEO ought to have intellectual deep pockets in the critical areas and be able not just to read stuff, but to debate with them and really have a very heated discussion. That's where a lot of the good ideas get flushed out.
0: I couldn't agree with you more about having a, a trusted group to have those deep conversations, people you can run ideas off of and, and see things from a new angle. I also find that writing helps clarify my thoughts. And I would be interested in your, your approach to writing. I mean, you wrote Remote Inc. You wrote Extreme Productivity. How does writing help you solidify your thinking and help you prepare for the future?
1: Yeah, well, I, I agree totally with you. I've been publishing 10 articles a year for the last decade. And when you sit down and have to write something, it forces you to be a lot more systematic about what you're thinking. It also forces you to clarify certain things, which you can get by in conversation with a bit of sloppiness. But when you sit down and write it, especially I've been writing a lot of op-eds, And those are usually less than a thousand words. Now, a lot of people say, how can you possibly deal with a thousand words? I say it's a very clarifying experience because then you really have to say, what are the main points here and uh, how can I uh, make them persuasive? So I spend uh, a lot of time writing and I try to write a first draft and then go back and really see whether or not I think that draft is persuasive. But the the last thing I'll say about writing is, I believe you need to write an outline before you try to write an article or an essay or anything. Because writing is really two different processes. One is it's a thinking process about developing your logical line of argument. And second of all, it's a translation process by which you translate to the reader and communicate your points. If you try to do them both at the same time, I find it's very frustrating and you get mixed up. You really need to be very clear about your line of argument before you start, and then you can write and concentrate on the communication. So if people tell me they write without outlines, I'm really against that. I'm like president of the pro outline.
0: I think that's great advice. So you start with your getting your ideas down on paper, your line of argument, the core principles that you're trying to get across. And then you convert that into how do I translate that? How do I communicate? I'm assuming at that point you can get into analogies, you can get into drawing examples, all the effective ways to communicate, right?
1: Yeah. And you know, I tell people just get all those ideas out there on a piece of paper and then group them into categories. Third of all, put them into a logical order. That's how you do an outline. And then as you say, then you got to think about how you're going to communicate. Is there some sort of jazzy example that you can start with that will grab the reader? How are you going to end to really grab the reader? But unless you have that line of argument well done, you're not going to really do very well on the communication side.
0: You know, Bob, there can be a virtual cycle to writing and then attracting the right group of Colleagues to have those deep conversations. Because if you are effective at writing, you will attract people to you that will help you become your brain trust.
1: Yeah, I agree with you very much so.
0: Well, you know, as we come to the end of the conversation, I wanted to think into the future. You know, most of us have been working remotely for the past year at least. Thankfully, due to the vaccines. We are getting closer to opening up our economy again. Many of us are considering going back to our offices, maybe downtown or to the suburbs, wherever we used to work before we were working at home. So this is sort of a pivotal time.
1: At the end of the book, in the last chapter, we talk about the hybrid system, partly remote and partly at home. And what we say is everybody should aim for what we call the Goldilocks plan, not too much remote work and not too little. And how do you go about finding that optimal combination? In our view, there are five considerations, and we give them a little acronym, F-L-O-C-S. So F stands for function. And so that has to do with how much of your work is collaborative. Well, that may be done better at the office versus how much is concentrated work of your own. That may be done better at home. Uh, Second is location. Are you in a small city like Boise, Idaho, where everyone can easily come in? Or is there an hour and a half commute each way, like some parts of New York? Third of all is organization. How is your, your group organized? And we stress that the key organizational unit is team. And so in a big organization, you might come out with a different optimal configuration depending on the team. Take a financial services firm. There's the investment group, the investment teams, then there's the marketing teams, customer service teams, the technology teams. So you might come out with very different combinations of remote and office work for each of those teams. Then we have C for culture. And I think in talking to a lot of senior executives, they're very concerned about losing a company's culture if everyone is remote, and I tend to agree, I wanna see some people back in the office, whether it's two days a week, and if it's a global company, I wanna see them gathering once or twice a year, and especially for new employees onboarding, it's really important that spend some time in person so they can imbibe the culture of the company. And lastly is scheduling, the practical questions of how do you get people in and out of the office on the right days. With the team approach, I think you want everyone from the team in the office on the same days, but you could have two teams, one that comes in Tuesday, Wednesday, the other that comes in Monday, Thursday, and Friday. By rotating them through the same space, you can save a lot of real estate costs, and you also provide a shared office. At least it's a definite office for two people. I'm not really very keen on hoteling and hot desking. I think that doesn't give people a sense of permanency. They need a place when they come in the office that they can call their own. So those are some of the considerations that we raise in designing the hybrid workplace of the future.
0: One last question, Bob, and I'm going to widen the lens to think about the good life. And you know, as you were talking about your career and writing this book and the other books you wrote, it just sort of occurred to me that you know most people, when they retire, they start playing golf every day. They, they go to the beach, they're fishing. It seems like you've retired and gone to another career of teaching, writing. Can you talk a little bit about that as it relates to living a flourishing life and the good life and how you're using your time?
1: Well, it's a good question. And I'm really against the notion of retiring and playing golf. Uh, I've tried to play golf, and I noticed that the more I play, the worse I get. So uh, I'm not sure that's a good approach for me. I do play doubles tennis two or three times a week. That only takes an hour and a half. I really think it's if you want to have a satisfying life, you've got to do the things that are satisfying to you. To me, I want to remain intellectually curious. I want to feel like I'm helping people, and teaching is a great way to do it. It is much more flexible than working in a company. It's not exactly nine to six work, but it gives you a chance to talk to a lot of interesting people, to explore a lot of interesting ideas. And if you think writing is clarifying, try teaching, because if you have to teach a subject, then you really have to be very clear in your own mind about what you're doing. So I feel privileged to have the ability to be at a great place like MIT and to work there. And it keeps me young, keeps me curious, keeps me interested. And hopefully, uh, you know, I'm conferring some benefit on these students.
0: Well, Bob, this has just been a wonderful conversation. Where can people find out more about you and your work?
1: Well, there's a little bio at the uh, beginning of the book, Remote Incorporated. I have a website, bobposen.com which lists my books, uh, a number of the articles. Uh, so that's probably the best place. And we have a, a website for the book, remoteincorporatedbook.com. dot com. So that will give people uh, a lot of information about the book and hopefully they'll read it and hopefully they'll enjoy it. It's a quick read. It's a fun read. I hope a lot of people... Find it both intellectually stimulating and helps them get to a better level of personal and job satisfaction, just like you want. Help get people to achieve the good life.
0: Well, this has been a great conversation, Bob. Thank you for being on The Good Life.
1: Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe. Provide a review in Apple or Spotify. And visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.